Chapter Twenty Three of Jock of the Bushveld. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Sally McConnell in Betty's Bay, South Africa, in January Twenty Ten. Jock of the Bushveld by Sir Percy Fitzpatrick. Chapter Twenty Three: The Fighting Baboon. On the way to Leidenburg, not many treks from Paradise Camp, we were outspanned for the day. Those were the settled parts. On the hills and in the valleys about us were the widely scattered working of the gold diggers, or the white tents of occasional prospectors. The place was a well-known and much-frequented public outspan, and a fair-sized wayside store marked its importance. After breakfast we went to the store to swap news with the men on the spot and a couple of horsemen who had off-saddled there. There were several other houses of sorts. They were rough wattle and daub erections which were called houses as an acknowledgment of pretensions expressed in the rectangular shape and corrugated iron roof. One of these belonged to Seedling, the field cornet and only official in the district. He was the petty local justice who was supposed to administer minor laws collect certain revenues and taxes, and issue passes. The salary was nominal, but the position bristled with opportunities for one who was not very particular, and the then occupant of the office seemed well enough pleased with the arrangement, whatever the public may have thought of it. He was neither popular nor trusted. Many tales of great harshness and injustice to the natives, and of corruption and favouritism in dealing with the whites, added to habitual drunkenness and uncertain temper, made a formidable tally in the account against him. He was also a bully and a coward, and all knew it. But unfortunately, he was the law, as it stood for us. Seedling, although an official of the Boer government, was an Englishman. There were several of them on the goldfields in those days, and for the most part they were good fellows and good officials. This one was an exception. We all knew him personally, he was effusively friendly, and we suffered him, and paid for the drinks. That was in his public capacity. In his private capacity he was the owner of the fighting baboon of evil and cruel repute. If ever fate's instruments moved, unconscious of their mission and the part they were to play, it is certain that Jock and Jim Muckokel did so that day, the day that was the beginning of Seedling's fall and end. It is not very clear how the trouble began. We had been sitting on the little store counter and talking for over an hour, a group of half a dozen, swapping off the news of the goldfields and the big world against that from Delagoa and the Bushveld. Seedling had joined us early and, as usual, began the morning with drinks. We were not used to that on the road, or out hunting. Indeed, we rarely took any drink, and most of us never touched a drop except in the towns. The transport rider had opportunities which might easily become temptations, the load often consisting of liquor, easy to broach and only to be paid for at the end of the trip, but we always had before us the lesson of the failures. Apart from this, however, we did not take liquor, because we could not work as well or last as long, run as fast or shoot as straight if we did, and that was reason enough. We had one round of his drinks which was called by one of the horsemen, and then, to return the compliment, another round called by one of us. A few minutes later, Seedling announced effusively that it was his shot. But it was only ten in the morning, and those who had taken spirits had had enough. 
Indeed, several had only taken a sip of the second round in order to comply with a stupid and vicious custom. I would not and could not attack another bottle of sour ginger beer, and thus Seedling's round was reduced to himself and the proprietor. No man, however thirsty, would drink alone in those days. It was taken as a mark of meanness or evidence of soaking, and the proprietor had to be ready at any time to take one for the good of the house. A quarter of an hour passed, and Seedling, who had said nothing since his shout was declined, turned away and strolled out with his hands thrust deep in the pockets of his riding breeches, and a long, heavy shambok dangling from one wrist. There was silence as he moved through the doorway, and when the square patch of sunlight on the earth floor was again unbroken, the man behind the counter remarked, "'Too long between drinks for him! Gone for a pull at the private bottle!' "'Is that how it's going?' Yeah, all day long. Drinks ear as long as anyone will call, but don't do much shouting on his own, I tell you. That's the first time I've seen him call for a week. He wanted to get you chaps on the go, I reckon. He'll be wrong all day today. I know him. Cost him two bob for nothing, eh? Well, it ain't so much that, you see. He reckoned you'd shout your turns, and drinks had come regular, but he sees you're not on. Twig? I'm not complaining, mind you, Lord, no. He don't pay anyway. It's all chalked up for him, and I got to wipe it off the slate when the next load comes and he collects my customs duties. His liquors took him wrong today. You'll see. We did see, and that before very long. We'd forgotten Seedling, and were hearing all about the new finds reported from Barberton District, when one of the wagon boys came running into the store, calling to me by my kaffir name and shouting excitedly, Bass! Bass! Come quickly! The baboon has got jock! It will kill him! I had known all about the vicious brute, and had often heard of Seedling's fiendish delight in arranging fights, or enticing dogs up to attack it for the pleasure of seeing the beast kill the overmatched dogs. The dog had no chance at all, for the baboon remained out of reach in his house on the pole, as long as it chose, if the dog was too big or the opening not a good one, and made its rush when it would tell best. But apart from this, the baboon was an exceptionally big and powerful one, and it is very doubtful if any dog could have tackled it successfully in an open fight. The creature was as clever as even they can be. Its enormous jaws and teeth were quite equal to the biggest dogs, and it had the advantage of four hands. Its tactics in a fight were quite simple and most effective. With its front feet it caught the dog by the ears or neck, holding the head so that there was no risk of being bitten, and then gripping the body lower down with the hind feet, it tore lumps out of the throat, breast and stomach, pushing with all four feet and tearing with the terrible teeth. The poor dogs were hopelessly outmatched. I did not see the beginning of Jock's encounter, but the boys' stories pieced together told everything. It appears that when Seedling left the store, he went into his own hut and remained there some little time. On coming out again, he strolled over to the baboon's pole about halfway between the two houses, and began teasing it, throwing pebbles at it to see it dodge and duck behind the pole, and then flicking at it with the shambok, amused by its frightened and angry protests. While he was doing this, Jock, who had followed me to the store, strolled out again, making his way towards the wagons. He was not interested in our talk. He had twice been accidentally trodden on by men stepping back as he lay stretched out on the floor behind them, and doubtless he felt that it was no place for him. His deafness prevented him from hearing movements, except such as caused vibration in the ground, 
And poor old fellow, he was always at a disadvantage in houses and towns. The baboon had then taken refuge in its box on top of the pole to escape the shambok, and when Seedling saw Jock come out, he commenced whistling and calling softly to him. Jock, of course, heard nothing. He may have responded mildly to the friendly overtures conveyed by the extended hand and patting of legs, or more probably simply took the nearest way to the wagon where he might sleep in peace, since there was nothing else to do. What the boys agree on is that as Jock passed the pole, Seedling patted and held him, at the same time calling the baboon, and then gave the dog a push, which did not quite roll him over but upset his balance, and Jock, recovering himself naturally, jumped round and faced Seedling, standing almost directly between him and the baboon. He could not hear the rattle of the chain on the box and pole, and saw nothing of the charging brute, and it was the purest accident that the dog stood a few inches out of reach. The baboon, chained by the neck instead of the waist, because it used to bite through all loin straps, made its rush, but the chain brought it up before its hands could reach Jock, and threw the hindquarters round with such force against him that he was sent rolling yards away. I can well believe that the second attack from a different and wholly unexpected quarter thoroughly roused him, and can picture how he turned to face it. It was at this moment that Jim first noticed what was going on. The other boys had not expected anything when Seedling called the dog, and they were taken completely by surprise by what followed. Jim would have known what to expect. His kraal was in the neighbourhood. He knew Seedling well, and had already suffered in fines and confiscations at his hands. He also knew about the baboon, but he was ignorant, just as I was, of the fact that Seedling had left his old place across the river and come to live in the new hut, bringing his pet with him. It was the hoarse, threatening shout of the baboon as it jumped at Jock, as much as the exclamations of the boys, that aroused Jim. He knew instantly what was on, and grabbing a stick made a dash to save the dog, with the other boys following him. When Jock was sent spinning in the dust, the baboon recovered itself first, and standing up on its hind legs, reached out with its long, ungainly arms towards him, and let out a shout of defiance. Jock, regaining his feet, dashed in, jumped aside, fainted again and again as he had learnt to do when Big Horn swished at him, and he kept out of reach just as he had done ever since the diker taught him the use of its hoofs. He knew what to do, just as he had known how to swing the porcupine. The dog, for all the fighting fury that possessed him, took the measure of the chain and kept outside it. Round and round he flew, darting in, jumping back, snapping and dodging, but never getting right home. The baboon was as clever as he was. At times it jumped several feet in the air, straight up, in the hope that Jock would run underneath. At others it would make a sudden lunge with the long arms, or a more surprising reach-out with the hind legs to grab him. Then the baboon began gradually to reduce its circle, leaving behind its slack chain enough for a spring. But Jock was not to be drawn. In cleverness they were well matched. Neither scored an attack, neither made or lost a point. When Jim rushed up to save Jock, it was with eager, anxious shouts of the dog's name that warned Seedling and made him turn, and as the boy ran forward, the white man stepped out to stop him. Leave the dog alone, he said, pale with anger. Bass! Bass! The dog will be killed! Jim called excitedly as he tried to get round, but the white man made a jump towards him, and with a backhand slash of the shambok struck him across the face, shouting at him again, Leave him, I tell you! 
Jim jumped back, thrusting out his stick to guard another vicious cut, and so it went on with alternate slash and guard, and the big Zulu danced round with nimble bounds, guarding, dodging, or bearing the shambok cuts, to save the dog. Seedling was mad with rage, for who had ever heard of a nigger standing up to a field cornet? Still, Jim would not give way. He kept trying to get in front of Jock, to head him off the fight, and all the while shouting to the other boys to call me. But Seedling was the field cornet, and not one of them dared to move against him. At last the baboon, finding that Jock would not come on, tried other tactics. It made a sudden retreat, and rushing for the pole, hid behind it as for protection. Jock made a jump, and the baboon leapt out to meet him. But the dog stopped at the chain's limit, and the baboon, just as in the first dash of all, overshot the mark. It was brought up by the jerk of the collar, and for one second sprawled on its back. That was the first chance for Jock, and he took it. With one spring he was in, his head shot between the baboon's hind legs, and with his teeth buried in the soft stomach, he lay back and pulled, pulled for dear life as he had pulled and dragged on the legs of wounded game, tugged as he had tugged at the porcupine, held on as he had held on when the kudu bull wrenched and strained every bone and muscle in his body. Then came the sudden turn. As Jock fastened on to the baboon, dragging taut the chain while the screaming brute struggled on its back, Seedling stood for a second irresolute, and then with a stride forward raised his shambok to strike the dog. That was too much for Jim. He made a spring in, and grasping the raised shambok with his left hand, held Seedling powerless, while in his right hand the boy raised his stick on guard. Let him fight, Bass! You said it! Let the dog fight! He panted, hoarse with excitement. The white man, livid with fury, struggled and kicked, but the wrist loop of the shambok held him prisoner, and he could do nothing. That was the moment when a panic-stricken boy plucked up the courage enough to call me, and that was the scene we saw as we ran out of the little shop. Jim would not strike the white man, but his face was a muddy grey, and it was written there that he would rather die than give up the dog. Before I reached them, it was clear to us all what had happened. Jim was protesting to Seedling, and at the same time calling to me. It was a jumble, but a jumble eloquent enough for us, and all intelligible. Jim's excited gabble was addressed with reckless incoherence to Seedling, to me, and to Jock. You threw him in. You tried to kill him. He did it. It was not the dog. Kill him, Jock. Kill him. Leave him. Let him fight. You said it. Let him fight. Kill him, Jock. Kill. 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 Then Seedling did the worst thing possible. He turned on me with, Call off your dog, I tell you, or I'll shoot him and your nigger too. We'll see about that. They can fight it out now. And I took the shambok from Jim's hand and cut it from the white man's wrist. Now, stand back. And he stood back. The baboon was quite helpless. Powerful as the brute was, and formidable as were the arms and gripping feet, it had no chance while Jock could keep his feet and had strength to drag and hold the chain tight. The collar was choking it, and the grip on the stomach, the baboon's own favourite and most successful device, was fatal. I set my teeth and thought of the poor helpless dogs that had been decoyed in and treated the same way. Jim danced about, the white seam of froth on his lips, hoarse gusts of encouragement bursting from him as he leant over Jock, and his whole body vibrating like an overheated boiler. 
and Jock hung on in grim earnest, the silence on his side broken only by grunting efforts as the deadly tug, tug, tug went on. Each pull caused his feet to slip a little on the smooth-worn ground, but each time he set them back again, and the grunting tugs went on. It was not justice to call Jock off, but I did it. The cruel brute deserved killing, but the human look and cries and behaviour of the baboon were too sickening, and Seedling went into his hut without even a look at his stricken champion. Jock stood off with his mouth open from ear to ear, and his red tongue dangling, blood-stained and panting, but with eager feet ever on the move shifting from spot to spot, ears going back and forward, and eyes now on the baboon and now on me, pleading for the sign to go in again. Before evening, the baboon was dead. The day's excitement was too much for Jim. After singing and dancing himself into a frenzy round jock, after shouting the whole story of the fight, in violent and incessant gabble over and over again to those who had witnessed it, after making every ear ring and every head swim with his mad din, he grabbed his sticks once more and made off for one of the kraals, there to find drink for which he thirsted, body and soul. In the afternoon the sudden scattering of the inhabitants of a small kraal on the hillside opposite and some lusty shouting drew attention that way. At distances of from two to five hundred yards from the hut there stood figures, singly or grouped in twos and threes, up to the highest slopes. They formed a sort of crescent above the kraal, and on the lower side of it, hiding under the bank of a river, were a dozen or more whose heads only were visible. They were all looking towards the kraal like a startled herd of buck. Now and then a burly figure would dart out from the huts with wild bounds and blood-curdling yells, and the watchers on that side would scatter like chaff and flee for dear life up the mountainside, or duck instantly and disappear in the river. Then he would stalk back again and disappear, to repeat the performance on another side a little later on. It was all perfectly clear to me. Jim had broken out. We were loaded for Leidenburg, another week's trekking through and over the mountains, and as we intended coming back the same way a fortnight later, I decided at once to leave Jim at his kraal, which was only a little further on, and pick him up on the return journey. I nearly always paid him off in livestock or sheep. He had good wages, and for many months at a time he would draw no money. The boy was a splendid worker, and as true as steel, so that, in spite of all the awful worry, I had a soft spot for Jim, and had taken a good deal of trouble on his account. He got his pay at the end of the trip or the season, but not in cash. It was invested for him, greatly to his disgust at the time, I am bound to say, in livestock, so that he would not be able to squander it in drink, or be robbed of it while incapable. Jim's gloomy dignity was colossal when it came to squaring up, and I invited him to state what he wished me to buy for him. To be treated like an irresponsible child, to be chaffed and cheerfully warned by me, to be met by the giggles and squirts of laughter of the other boys for whom he had the most profound contempt, to see the respectable Sam counting out with awkward eager hands and gleaming eyes the good red gold, while he, Makokela the Zulu, was treated like a pekinin. Ah, it was horrible, intolerable. Jim would hold aloof in injured, gloomy silence, not once looking at me, but standing sideways and staring stonily past me into the far distance, and not relaxing for a second the expression of profound displeasure on his weather-beaten face. No joke or chaff, no question or reason, 
would move him to even look my way. All he would do was now and again give a click of disgust, a quick shake of the head, and say, Ah, hangafuna! I do not desire it. We had the same fight over and over again, but I always won in the end. Once, when he would not make up his mind what to buy, I offered him, instead of cash, two of the worst oxen in his span at the highest possible valuation. And the effect was excellent, but the usual lever was to announce that if he could not make his choice and bargain for himself, I would do it for him. In the end, he invariably gave way and bargained with his Kaffir friends for a deal, venting on them by his hard driving and browbeating some of the accumulated indignation which ought to have gone elsewhere. When it was all over, Jim recovered rapidly, and at parting time there were the broadest of grins and a stentorian shout of, Salagathlenkos! And Jim went off with his springy walk, swinging his sticks and jabbering his thoughts aloud, evidently about me, for every now and then he would spring lightly into the air, twirl the stick, and shout a deep-throated, Inkos! Full of the joy of living, a boy going home for his holiday. This time Jim was too fully wound up to be dealt with as before, and I simply turned him off, telling him to come back to the camp in a fortnight's time. I was a day behind the wagons returning, and riding up to the camp towards midday, found Jim waiting for me. He looked ill and shrunken, wrapped in an old coat and squatting against the wall of the little hut. As I passed, he slowly rose and gave his Sagabona in gauze, with that curious controlled air by which the Kaffir manages to suggest a kind of fatalist resignation or indifference, touched with disgust. There was something wrong, so I rode past without stopping. One learns from them to find out how the land lies before doing anything. It was a bad story, almost as bad as one would think possible where civilised beings are concerned. Jim's own story lacked certain details of which he was necessarily ignorant. It also omitted the fact that he had been drunk, but in the main it was quite true. This is what happened as gleaned from several sources. Several days after our departure, Jim went down to the store again and raised some liquor. He was not fighting, but he was noisy, and was the centre of a small knot of shouting, arguing boys near the store when Seedling returned after a two days' absence. No doubt it was unfortunate that the very first thing he saw on his return was the boy who had defied him, and who was the cause of his humiliation, and that that boy should by his behaviour give the slenderest excuse for interference was in the last degree unlucky. Seedling's mind was made up from the moment he set eyes on Jim. Throwing the reins over his horse's head, he walked into the excited gabbling knot, all unconscious of his advent, and laid about him with the shambok, scattering and silencing them instantly. He then took Jim by the wrist, saying, I want you! He called to one of his own boys to bring a rim, and leading Jim over to the side of the store, tied him up to the horse-rail with arms at full stretch. Taking out his knife, he cut the boy's clothing down the back so that it fell away in two halves in front of him. Then he took off his own coat and flogged the boy with his shambok. I would like to tell all that happened for one reason. It would explain the murderous man-hunting feeling that possessed us when we heard it, but it was too cruel. Let it be. Only one thing to show the spirit. Twice during the flogging, Seedling stopped to go into the store for a drink. Jim crawled home to find his kraal ransacked and deserted, and his wives and children driven off in panic. In addition to the flogging, Seedling had, in accordance with his practice, 
imposed fines far beyond the boy's means in cash so as to provide an excuse for seizing what he wanted. The police boys had raided the kraal, and the cattle and goats, his only property, were gone. He told it all in a dull monotone. For the time, the life and fire were gone out of him, but he was not cowed, not broken. There was a curl of contempt on his mouth and in his tone that whipped the white skin on my own back and made it all a disgrace unbearable. That this should be the reward for his courageous defence of Jock seemed too awful. We went inside to talk it over and make our plans. The wagons should go on next day as if nothing had happened, Jim remaining in one of the half-tents or elsewhere out of sight of passers-by. I was to ride into Leidenburg and lodge information, for in such a case the authorities would surely act. That was the best, or at any rate, the first course to be tried. There was no difficulty about the warrant, for there were many counts in the indictment against Seedling, but even so worthless a brute as that seemed to have one friend, or perhaps an accomplice, to give him warning, and before we reached his quarters with the police, he had cleared on horseback for Portuguese territory, taking with him a led horse. We got most of Jim's cattle back for him, which he seemed to consider the main thing, but we were sorely disgusted at the man's escape. That was the year of the rush. Thousands of newcomers poured into the country on the strength of the gold discoveries. Materials and provisions of all kinds were almost unprocurable and stood at famine prices, and consequently we, the transport riders, reaped a golden harvest. Never had there been such times. Wagons and spans were paid for in single trips, and so great was the demand for supplies that some refused transport and bought their own goods, which they resold on the gold fields at prices twice as profitable as the highest rates of transport. Thus the days lost in the attempt to catch seedling were valuable days. The season was limited, and as early rains might cut us off, a few days thrown away might mean the loss of the whole trip. We hurried down, therefore, for the bay, doing little hunting that time. Near the crocodile on our way down, we heard from men coming up that Seedling had been there some days before, but that hearing we were on the way down, and had sworn to shoot him, he had ridden on to Kamati, leaving one horse behind, bad with horse sickness. The report about shooting him was, of course, ridiculous, probably his own imagination, but it was some comfort to know that he was in such a state of terror that his own fancies were hunting him down. At Kamati we learned that he had stayed three days at the store of that Goanese murderer, Antonio, the same Antonio who, on one occasion, had tried to drug and hand over to the enemy two of our men who had got into trouble defending themselves against raiding natives, the same Antonio who afterwards made an ill-judged attempt to stab one Mickey O'Connor in a Barberton canteen, and happily got brained with a bottle of his own doctored spirits for his pains. Antonio, suspecting something wrong about a white man who came on horseback and dawdled aimlessly three days at Kamati Drift, going indoors whenever a stranger appeared, wormed the secret out with liquor and sympathy, and when he had got most of Seedling's money out of him, by pretense of bribing the Portuguese officials and getting news, made a bold bid for the rest by saying that a warrant was out for him in Delagoa, and he must on no account go on. The evil-looking half-caste no doubt hoped to get the horse, saddle and bridle as well as the cash, and was quite prepared to drug seedling when the time came, and slip him quietly into Kamati at night where the crocodiles would take care of the evidence. Antonio, however, overshot the mark. 
Seedling, who knew all about him, took fright, saddled up, and bolted up the river, meaning to make for the Limbombo near the Tembe Drift, where Bob McNabb and his merry comrades ran free of governments and were a law unto themselves. It was no place for a nervous man, but Seedling had no choice, and he went on. He had liquor in his saddlebags and food for several days, but he was not used to the bush, and at the end of the first day he had lost his way and was beyond the river district where the Kaffirs lived. So much is believed, though not positively known. At any rate, he left the last kraal in those parts about noon, and was heard of two days later at a kraal under the Labombo. There he learnt that the black Umbelusi, which it would be necessary to swim, as Snowball and Setsi had done, lay before him, and that it was yet a great distance to Seboguan's, and even then he would be only halfway to Bob's. Seedling could not face it alone, and turned back for the nearest store. The natives said that before leaving the kraal he bought beer from them, but did not want food, for he looked sick. He was red and swollen in the face, and his eyes were wild. The horse was weak and also looked sick, being very thin and empty, but they showed him the footpath over the hills which would take him to Tom's, a white man's store on the road to Delagoa, and he left them. That was Tom Barnett's at Piscini, where we always stopped, for Tom was a good friend of ours. That was how we came to meet Seedling again. He had made a loop of a hundred and fifty miles in four days in his efforts to avoid us, but he was waiting for us when we arrived at Tom Barnett's. We, who had hurried on to catch him, believing that the vengeance of justice depended on us, forgot that it had been otherwise decreed. Tom stood in the doorway of his store as we walked up, five feet one in his boots, but every inch of it a man, with his hands resting idly on his hips, and a queer smile on his face as he nodded welcome. Did a white man come here on horseback during the last few days from the drift? No. On foot? No, not the whole way. Is he here now? Tom nodded. You know about him, Tom. Seedling, the chap you're after, isn't it? Yes, we answered, lowering our voices. Tom looked from one to the other with the same queer smile, and then making a move to let us into the store, said quietly, He won't clear, boys. He's dead. Some Kaffirs coming along the footpath from the Bombo had found the horse dead of horse sickness half a day away, and further on, only a mile or so from the store, the rider lying on his back in the sun, dying of thirst. He died before they got him in. He was buried under a big fig tree where another and more honoured grave was made later on. Jim sat by himself the whole evening and never spoke a word. End of chapter 23